When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, March 18th, 2021. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. Rebecca, how are you? You know what? I am pretty good. Mm. It is Thursday. Yes. We're nearing the weekend. Mm -hmm. It's mostly spring where I live. I'm I'm feeling emergence. There's like trees are budding and daffodils yes. are in my yard. And literally I wake up to bird song right now. I'm like some little Cinderella fairy tale situation for the first five minutes of the day. And it's not bad. I'm doing okay. How are you? It is so interesting that this nascent end of COVID, at least the extremely acute time, right? COVID's going to be around in its whatever form for maybe as long as we both shall live and become a cold that kids have or whatever the future is going to be. But this lockdown period that it's ending as spring happens is so, in in literature, they would call it the pathetic fallacy is the name for it, when the weather (laughs) mirrors the character's mood, Mm -hmm. right? It's, It's someone sad and it's raining. But the whole world right now is subject to the pathetic fallacy, I think, in, in certain, and certainly in America where the vaccines are flowing and the spigots really seem to be getting turned on. And here in Portland, Oregon, um, we're supposed to have all adults be eligible for vaccines uh, in April now, which is soon, you know, like mid-April is, is only a few weeks away. And it feels like a, emotionally it's a long way away. Temporarily, it's not that far. Um, the difference here. So it is an interesting time. I am glad you are feeling like a daffodil ready to burst <laughs> forth from the from the soil. Um, we've got listener feedback. We've got a lot of follow up. Uh, a lot, okay. of, a lot of polling stuff. Protesting of the polling stuff. It's one of those weeks uh, in the world of books and reading. Um, so we'll do that right after we we do a sponsor. Do follow up listener feedback about the four wins Kristen Hannah's book now I'm not sure I was about to say four seasons oh. like that's the hotel right four wins is yes, the new Kristen the four Hanna. wins is the new one yes had a had a librarian write in to say that it is the most requested book of all time Whoa. in their library system print and digital another that's person wild. wrote in to say something similar um I don't know when do we need some sort of like bell to ring, but Kristen <laughs> Hanna is now a brand. I'm calling oh, it yes. today. I I was on the verge of it before, but Kristen Hanna is now a brand. I think slotting, of course, below the kings of the world. Um, and I am not even ready to call she, the the author of the books that feature Harry Potter. Mm. Is a brand. I think Harry Potter's a brand. I'm not, not sure she's a brand. We haven't seen her be able to break out across. Yes, that's some other that's stuff. That's an important distinction. But King can, right? King is, mm-hmm. he writes a book, and if it's different, people are going to read it. 
Rebecca, where are we in the author is brand? Who else do we put? King is singular. Okay. Who else is up there with the author as brand right now? The author. I mean, I think John Grisham. Mm-hmm. Dan Brown. Yeah. Nora Roberts. The big genre writers. I think N.K. Jemison is approaching that. Like, not she doesn't yeah. have as many books out as the rest of these folks. That's an important distinction. You can be a brand within your genre. I guess I'm talking about book culture, mm. crossover appeal. Uh-huh. You know, people who don't read books have heard the name Stephen King. Well, then certainly E.L. James. E.L. James. Is she a brand, though, in which a new E.L. James book is a deal, no matter if it's Fifty Shades related or not? I think no. I think the answer to that is no, but you might have a different sense of that. Mm, yeah, that's that's true. The new books that she does do continue to perform as long as they are Fifty Shades books. But right. she had that one novel or was going to have one novel. I can't even the remember chemist, if it right? came was out or not. Was that The not. Chemist? Maybe. Or was that... Um, <laughs> Your guess is as good as I think mine. it was The Chemist. Uh, <laughs> I think Stephanie Meyer was... Or was Meyer that Stephanie was... Meyer? I was going to say, is it Stephanie Meyer? Stephanie Meyer was almost a brand. Almost. Almost, yeah. Almost. Uh, who else? Malcolm Gladwell is a brand. Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, you know, and my new boyfriend, Adam Grant, is Adam a brand. Adam Grant is a brand. I think Colson Whitehead is a brand, honestly. That's the one I was wondering about. I mean, it fits the bill. He fits the bill of yeah. the books are all different. They're like every book is a different genre, but you know it's going to mm. be good and you trust him because of that. And that's if you think about like franchises and going to a Starbucks, that's the appeal is like they're going to make my latte the same way every right. time or it's supposed to be the appeal. That's they're going right. to make my latte the same way every time, whether I'm in a Starbucks in my hometown or if I'm 500 miles away or 5000 mm. miles mm. away. And with Colson Whitehead, you're going to have a good experience in those 300 pages. Folks who are reading Grisham know they're going to have a good experience. Oh, David Baldacci. He, I think yeah. he's a brand. Um, Robert Ludlum. I mean, any, any, there's a couple ways of thinking about it. Are this, we right? noticing a trend here that most of these are older white guys? Yeah. I mean, the mystery thriller, political thriller <laughs> thing is its own It's its own oh, genre that's become mass Jeff. market, right? Brene Brown is a brand. I think that's a great point. I, here's, here's one way of thinking about it. We look at the book. Is the author's name bigger than the title is mm, one That's thing. a good one. Another Ooh, one is do people Roxanne say... Roxanne Gay is a brand. Do people say there's a new... There's a new Roxanne Gay book out rather than is there a new um, uh, Alex Cross book out or a new, you know, a character Mm. or series rather than the author's name. I think people would say there's a new Harry Potter book out. I don't know that people would say there's a new J.K. Rowling book out. Um, I am into this distinction. And I do think, yeah, I think Roxanne Gay is one of those. I'm not sure. There's a new Roxanne Gay book. I think she's hipsterish. I, I think her her hipster is the wrong way of put it. Um, literary oh, I, folk. I don't know. Mm-hmm. She doesn't get turned out on the end of an aisle at Target. I think that's the kind of thing we're talking about right now. Whitehead's borderline. Celeste Ng, I think, is interesting. Uh-huh. She's a oh, borderline Oh, Jasmine case. Guillory, I think, is getting there. I think that's very close. Very close. Um yeah, it, it's interesting. It's interesting. Gillian Flynn, if she wrote more. I think one problem we have in the non-genre or the light, more, the, the less conventionally genre places is the books don't come out often enough. That's true. Right? Because Celeste Eng, I would say, if she was writing like Kristen Hanna, which I think is a book every couple years, I think is mm-hmm. Hannah's Pace, that's often enough where 
there's enough momentum there. I think she writes more like a conventional literary fiction writer, which is a few years, but which is there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I, the brand, the franchiseness, the brand, maybe the franchise versus brand distinction is even interesting in that regard. Which you need more of it <laughs> to become That's a franchise or brand. Oh, um, what's her face, Ellen Hildebrand? I think she's a brand. Yeah, that you had to say. What's her face is not a great look for her as a brand. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> That's my own personal bias. Yes, but we do, but like, we do a podcast about books. If the name is not tip of tongue for us, I think that's a strike times three, really. Oh, I, you know, Jody Pico is a brand, yeah. even if I don't Jennifer love it. Jennifer Weiner? <laughs> Susan Orlean. Mm, Mary Roach. A, Bill Susan, Bryson. Mary Roach is a brand. Susan Orlean is a brand in the like hipster literary sense. Yeah, right. A sub a, a brand a, a local chain of beloved burger stands, <laughs> but not a McDonald's. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Is Hannah I think Hannah the most held book at a library of all time. Now again, we are in the golden age of holds on libraries because of, of digital and people being at home. So I don't know how much you know, it's it's like it's like um, the steroid era for baseball for home runs. Like, yes, it was a record, but also they were drinking ethanol and st- you know whatever else they were doing. Is right. it really compared to the forties? Um, but that and the book continues to sell number one bestseller list. It's not a runaway viral success, and we talked about how it really couldn't be because it's already known enough mm-hmm. um, in that regard. Um, I, I don't know. I I, I just. It's interesting to think about that, um, like a, a known name, but where people who read books, maybe are in a book club, would say the new X book is out, and people are like, oh, who's that? Oh, they wrote this. And they're like, oh, yeah. That to me is the that kind of exchange, that kind of mind share is what I'm talking about. And they're not mm-hmm. that many. They're not that many. Really. That's true. You know, if I had known we were going to do this segment. I didn't know we were going to do it either until we started well, doing it. Hello and welcome. Yeah, hello we and could welcome. have we could have called my mom because mm. she just texted me earlier this week to tell me that she and so my mom just likes historical fiction. Right. And she very much is the sort of I think very embodies like what we think of as like the average reader. Like she wanders into her library, her local libraries are open now, and in her vaccinated and masked state, she walks around and just looks for what's new and what sounds good. And then sometimes and where she browses. where does she go? Where, where is she in this moment? Is she at Target? she at a bookstore? Where, where She's, in, she her She's, in, her She's in her library. She's in her local library. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, She's in her local library. And then sometimes she browses her Goodreads account to see, to remember the names of the authors that she likes mm-hmm. and see if they have other books that she hasn't read yet. Maybe she requests those, but she had not had an experience with Kristen Hanna and she just somehow got her paws on a, on a new hardcover library copy of the four winds Boy, that's looking and, into a yeah and she doesn't apparently. even know what she looked into she yeah. was just we were just talking and last she week and she picked it up she saw a shelf talker mm-hmm. or whatever yeah and picked it up. yeah okay. she picked it up she checked it out we were we were talking earlier this week about we were just talking about you know what was going on in life and she texted me later and said oh and i forgot to tell you i'm reading this great new historical fiction book it's by Kristen hannah it's called the four winds yeah. and i almost was like how did you get your hands on that i think but I we did- need a segment like letterman used to do with <laughs> His mom on the phone with your mom. The voice, the Vox Populi, the uh-huh. voice of the people, but right, Vox Bibliae. 
You know, I did get to do this with my dad recently when he was like, how come libraries can't loan out ebooks just infinitely? Why right. why are there limits on them? Like, <laughs> oh, why do you have dad. to put a... Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was, why do you have to put a Let hold on an ebook? Let me send you a Zoom invite for three hours and we can go through <laughs> I, know, ex- I was like, you are the only person who has ever asked me this and I'm going to talk about it for 25 minutes now. <laughs> And bless uh, him, he paid attention. The dad I, like, tables I, have been turned, Rebecca. I know. I, I felt a little guilty for not conferencing you into that. Like, wait, Dad, there is a ma- there is a man that I know who needs this moment. That's right. But yeah, my mom. I was like, that book is a big deal, and mm-hmm. you know what I really want to do is like call her local librarians and be like, how many hardcover copies? It's like of contact that tracing. Do you have right? How many copies <laughs> of that do you have? And how is it possible that one was just out on the shelf for my yeah. mom to pick up because she was not number five million on the holds list she didn't even have it on hold like how how is it possible that library users are just stumbling on Kristen Hanna still there is a program at my um, beloved Multnomah County Library in normal times when you can actually go in they call I think it's called lucky day books where they are in demand books but they keep some percentage of the titles out of the gaping maw of the hold hordes <laughs> right and they just have them available <laughs> to browse and pick up. And then the the checkout time is shorter, right? Mm. It's like, I think 10 days rather than 21 or whatever. Let's say like, this is a hot property, but we don't, we want to make some available for Rebecca's mom, right? We don't just want nerds like me. Well, not me. I'm not putting the book on hold, but they they don't want like the power users to, to suck up the first three months of whatever's coming out that's really smart and i love it like, like i'm it glad i'm yeah. glad that my mom got to discover Kristen hannah yes. it's making her happy she's read like all the other world war ii historical fiction that mm-hmm. exists the good the bad and the horrible mm-hmm. and she was like i you know i was i was needing something and i was like well lucky for you there are so many Kristen hannah books but don't read firefly lane is she gonna go will she now then go blast through the, the back catalog i don't know if she'll mm. blast through them but it sounds to me like Kristen hannah is going on her list of like when there's nothing when her holds have not come in mm. or there's mm-hmm. nothing super appealing to her she'll she will now find Kristen Hanna on her list of library checkouts and Goodreads authors and uh, that she remembers she liked and yeah. will check out something that's on their right. backlist yeah right. yeah really interesting stuff so did she read crawdads no I wouldn't let her you w- <laughs> you w- she, and she listened to you <laughs> Yeah, she did. My parents do listen to me they when do I'm like, listen this, to you when it comes it, to that is bad. Don't waste your time. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder what else. Did you, the yeah. casting for the Crawdads movie came out earlier this week and I looked at it and I was like, we're not putting that on the podcast agenda. I, I saw it and immediately erased it from my memory. Proact- <laughs> proactive forgetting show title. Um, let's see. Speaking of brands, Seuss, can we talk? I just mm-hmm. was looking, th- I was flipping through Publishers Weekly as, as one does. It, it comes on Tuesdays, and I, I often enjoy fl- flipping through it on a Tuesday morning with my coffee. Still get the print Publishers Weekly. Shout outs to them. Um, and the, ch- the children's bestseller list this week. Now, in a, in a normal day, <laughs> this time of year, Seuss is already much like the, um, the, the rabbits multiplying in the spring meadow. The Seuss titles emerge. From their mm-hmm. from their long winter slumber to reemerge, and usually it's oh the place is your go. That's the one, right? We're in we're in the hot center. Right? We're getting towards graduation season. People are buying it up. This week, of the twenty books on the Publishers Weekly's list of best selling books, eighteen of them were Dr. Seuss titles. <laughs> Just a few, and. 
I, I don't know if I have anything else to, any additional thoughts what we said last time or the time before about what is happening. Like, what are people doing? Why are, are people reminded that Seuss exists? And like, I should buy some duck. Yeah. Are they like, they're going to take these away and I better I buy one fish, blue yeah. fish before they goes away. Yeah, is I think this is... Like, what is... Like, literally what is happening here? Yeah, I think that the Seuss, this Seuss surge is a product of how misrepresented the Seuss situation mm. has been. Mm-hmm. And the messaging from conservatives has been, they're taking your Dr. Seuss away. Right. Defend Dr. Seuss from censorship. That's right. Which is not what has happened. The Dr. No. Seuss estate made this decision and is doing just fine. And Dr. Seuss's granddaughter is on the record as of yesterday or today saying that she wishes that these books could just basically disappear. She doesn't want them out no. in the world as representation of her grandfather because she believes that his thinking would have evolved if he had mm-hmm. lived in to 2021 but the messaging is protect dr seuss and the way that we express those opinions in capitalism is go spend our money on those things so if you're on the side where you think that dr seuss is being attacked by censorship you go buy a bunch of dr seuss books to show your support for dr seuss and what they i mean i think this is kind of delicious because basically a bunch of conservatives are paying dr seuss for having decided to cancel some of their bad books or their books that have racist representations in them and it's that's pretty beautiful actually let's Reward Dr. Seuss. You just don't know you're rewarding. <laughs> the doc, the Seuss Enterprise is coming out smelling like a rose. Not only did we jettison this, these 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 bad, rotten ideas and representations from our catalog, and we get to feel good about that because I I I think what I've read from the Seuss and I, that that piece, um, her statements, the Dr. Seuss's granddaughter mm-hmm. statements, are very interesting. From what I can tell, they're doing this. Out of reasons I would be very sympathetic to if I were in that yeah. position, of course. Plus, boatloads of money come flying in at the same time. And what do you... Okay, so a bunch of conservatives are saying... Are, they're not yelling... They're yelling at the idea of cancel culture, which is <laughs> right. like this internet straw man situation who has no and, ether- corporeal form. Yeah, and so you're and, swinging at the air, buying yeah. the cat in the hat and giving and it to Random House, which I got to tell you... It's a bunch of liberal dudes like me and, and <laughs> ladies like you who yep. are going to go publish books that you don't want there. If you're if you're so worried about cancer, you don't want Random House having all this money. And congratulations, right. you failed. All of yeah, failed. it's. I think this is like the perfect situation for Dr. Seuss yes. and Random House because people Beautiful. who have read the news and understand it might be also buying Dr. Seuss, mm-hmm. like the the other Dr. Seuss books, in support of the decisions that the Seuss estate and that Random House have made. I haven't heard that story. No. I haven't heard people be like, you know what, I'm really in favor of this, and so I'm going to go spend some money on Dr. <laughs> Seuss books. But I think it's believable. You right. know, you it's believable. It's plausible. Um, I've heard a whole lot about conservatives who want to defend Dr. Seuss from Dr. Seuss's own decisions and don't realize that what they're doing is just actually rewarding. Lining the pockets this. of your it's oppressors. Be- yeah. You know what? This is There should be fiscal penalties for not actually reading. And I think they're paying it. This is what they're you just get. Yeah, this is it. That's what you're right. This is it. This is the tax. It's yeah, the tax the on tax. 
not having actually read the story. This is the tax on having just read the headline that someone shared with you on Facebook. Okay, cool. You want to go spend 100 bucks on Dr. Seuss books? Line the pockets of the liberal elite that run publishing houses. Do you think the Shel Silverstein estate is looking through <laughs> Shel Silverstein's back catalog for something they can unpublish? Which Shel Silverstein poem can we remove from where the sidewalk There's got to be a little chat book or something that's a little tough on gender or something like that. That You're like, you know what? I mean, if we did this, we could. I don't want to open the Pandora's box of our shared feelings about the giving tree, but there's some gendered stuff in there for sure. If you canceled the giving tree, it would be the literary story of the year. (laughs) Because that book, people, no one cares about what I saw on Mulberry Street or whatever these books are. They care about Dr. Seuss. No one. one. You see what I'm, you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. It's vanishingly small number of actual humans that are like, boy, I wish... What I saw on Mulberry Street was something that all children everywhere could read. The Giving Tree is actually more famous than Shel Silverstein. Like, that's a different thing, right? Like, I think, mm-hmm. don't you think? I think, yes. I think more people would say that they've read The Giving Tree than yeah. would be able to say that they are Shel Silverstein fans, yeah, certainly. Right, right. You, we could do this. You, I mean, um, my family, the, yeah, my family stopped are, reading well. some of the um, Ramona Quimby books because mm. um and again it's not the most damaging thing in the world but i'd rather read the vanderbeekers or renee watson you know it's there's there's just reasons it's, that i like that better there's ones that people would throw a fit about um yeah. in a variety of ways and when it's um, so interesting to me that like ramona quimby hasn't been updated because that is one thing that they did with judy bloom yeah. books where like the original are you there god it's me margaret it was from the 70s, I believe, and it refers to like period care products that evolved in the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s. And I remember first reading, I first read it when I was like, I don't know, eight or 10 in the mm-hmm. late 80s or early 90s. And it was the original edition. And I formed like certain ideas about what kind of period care products would eventually be in my life because they were in Margaret's life. And then discovered a few years later that actually like oh judy bloom is no longer accurate and they've updated that they've updated like conversations about condoms and Mm -hmm. sexuality in some of her older teen books and like we have these i think solid cores of stories for some of these older beloved series that it would be interesting to it's interesting that they haven't been updated i want to know why have there been conversations well how about this try this on for size i have a theory about this do you want to hear what it is i do beverly cleary's still alive so is Judy Bloom. Yeah, but she but Beverly Cleary's one hundred and five. Uh, like you know what I'm saying? Like Judy Bloom can affirmative assent to. I just don't know. I, I'd be curious. I hope Beverly Cleary is. Is Beverly happy. Cleary actually one hundred and five? Um, no, she's one hundred and four. Literally, she was born in nineteen sixteen, April twelfth, nineteen sixteen. She's one hundred four okay. years old. Are you currently no. googling this, or do you just know that? <laughs> I know she was one hundred and four. I just looked at her birthday because I was like, okay. when was it Beverly Cleary's birthday? <laughs> Because right, she's in Portland. Like, oh, there's a school right. name. She's like Clickety Cat right. okay. Street is here. Like, All right, I know... so, maybe, so maybe she's too old for the updating currently. And it, like post-Beverly Cleary, yeah. we may have. At this point, the grand, the great-granddaughter would be in charge of the estate at some day. You probably let great-grandma mm-hmm. rest in peace. You come back uh-huh. at it when there's a sure. state. that makes sense. Who's that makes got sense. what? Power of attorney. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Also, Beverly, the, the Ramona stuff, I should say, there's stuff, there's so many great kids' books that I'm not super anchored on any particular thing. If sure. If don't particularly like it. But Ways to Make Sunshine by Renee Watson is my understanding. 
Um, Renee Watson grew up in Portland, um, and the main character and, and her family are black in the books. Uh, it's fictional. So was explicitly or implicitly a updating of the Beverly Clearly Ramona Quimby? Oh. Without, I don't, it doesn't have like, it's not using the same characters, but it's like, uh-huh. But the same concept. age, kind of the same thing, similar, such, you know, similar kind of stakes and attitude. And it was great, by the way. I think I recommend yeah. it on the show in a variety of contexts. So it's out there, but it's not like it's not going back and changing well, and, and calling it the thing by sure. Beverly Clearly or whatever is what I'm saying. Yeah, I I will have to read that. I think I must have missed that mm-hmm. tidbit about it. Um, but I loved Beverly Cleary, and I am of course like very supportive of there being new authors who are telling new stories that update these ideas. I think the, I think I want both. I want the authors of older series or the estate holders for those authors to be willing and eager to Mm -hmm. update. Like if the books are still selling, I would like to live in the universe where the folks who control that material are willing and eager to remove ideas that become recognized as harmful or outdated and update them appropriately. I want people to be allowed to update their thinking and for us to reward that and for us not to cling so tightly to the old series that there's no space for new writers to come in and tell new and updated stories that could become that generation's beloved thing in the same way that like, I don't think to kill a mockingbird needs to stay on every school curriculum forever. There are new books that can be It's a period piece. I think that's a way to think about some of the things. They're period pieces. And we can read to kill a mockingbird as a period piece and also read a newer novel by a black author to be the one that ex- that is the novel we use to explore race in America. Right. We don't need to be using a, a novel written by a white woman in the 1940s as the lens on what does race mean yeah. here. It, it, it's, it's sometimes hard to remember. I used to tell my students this when we were talking about the, the, cl- the quote unquote classics, right? That all of these books at one time were contemporary. Like they were right. radical. Uh, most of them were radical and strange and people were arguing not to read them. Right. So what is our contemporary and what will become a classic for the mm-hmm. future that will be outdated in its own way? My memory of Beverly Cleary, this is what, again, I'm so sorry for things that were almost annotated anecdotes. But I was like, <laughs> I'm in Portland. Beverly Cleary's still alive. Could I talk to her family? Could I do whatever? Like there's statues of the Quimby's. My memory of the origin story and the little bit of reading I did to sort of see if there was something there was um, Cleary started working as a children's librarian and was having a hard time finding books that her patrons could identify with and so she wrote them. Hmm. So very much in the spirit of, of Seuss's granddaughter saying, I think if he were alive today, I think if Cleary were writing today, she wouldn't write verbatim the books that she wrote. Sure. No, nor would anyone, nor do we expect her to. Hopefully but not. But you could maybe. also understand the position of this family. Like, Beverly, Cleary, your grandma, and she's still alive. What are you going to do? Go out and say, let's go right. change Ramona Quimby, age eight? <laughs> right. Tough ask for a family It's a member. tough sell. Tough yeah. sell. Um, anyway. All right. Got some grace for Beverly Cleary. Yeah. We've established that. <laughs> 104. 104. Good for, I mean, good for you, Beverly Cleary. That's a nice, that's a nice hang. Uh, let's do another sponsor. Uh, let's see. I guess we're now into, yeah, I guess that's all. I kind of, I kind of ticked all the follow-up boxes I had there after a long exegesis on the, the, the life and <laughs> travails of Beverly Cleary. <laughs> Let's talk about let's talk about the the queen. Lest anyone forget <sighs> that anyone else was a pretender to the celebrity <laughs> book recommender throne. Sorry, Reese. 
Sorry, Natalie Portman. Who else is out? I don't even. Emma Watt. Who, who are the book recommender, recommend recommenders that are out there? Andrew Luck, uh, Steph Curry, his book club, Malala. You all are great. I'm gonna let you finish to quote a meme that's too old for anyone <laughs> to understand. But Oprah, with one Oprah. of the great one of the great flexes right now. Oh, Her greatest of all flexes was the William Faulkner box set that was the Oprah pick in about 2002. Do you remember I was, that? I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because yes. I was going to, yes. The, the, but I think picking the Gilead Quartet is what we're calling this. Yeah, all, uh-huh. Is that what we're now calling this? We are. As Oprah's most recent book club is the second greatest Oprah flex. And maybe because when she recommended the Faulkner that was kind of her way out the door of really carrying it or like doing it regularly, wasn't it? Like it was one of the last so. big, mm-hmm. we'd done the Franzen and the Morris and the Edwidge Dondecats, like every time they'd fly up and kind of on the way out, she's, you know what? Let's see what, let's throw some spaghetti <laughs> at the wall and recommend The Sound and the Fury, As I Lay Dying, Absalom, Absalom, and I can't remember what the, and, the fourth one and is. And she very cannily laid the groundwork for that because the interviews with Toni Morrison yeah. about, um, oh, what was it? I think The Bluest Eye was one of the picks and Beloved was one of the right. picks, if I'm remembering correctly, mm-hmm. laid the groundwork because Morrison talks about being so heavily influenced by Faulkner. And Oprah was smart to be like, well, you you could hang with Toni Morrison, so you can hang with I think it's one of it's a great move, right? You you, you waded so into the pool. If you can uh-huh. read Beloved, you can read The Sound and the Fury. You can. I mean, it's yeah. actually kind of shocking. You might not. You want hear to, that Morrison was can. influenced by Faulkner, but if you did like I did, which you read Beloved first and then came back to Sound and Fury, like, oh, 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 like it really is. It really is a, a familiar. Mm-hmm. If anything can be familiar to the, the, the experience <laughs> of reading Faulkner. Beloved, it is yeah. The Sound and the Fury for sure. Um, I'm not sure what else there is to say about this other than brava. No one is a bigger fan of this pick than we are. I didn't even read any comments. Did you read this? This is open. <laughs> Did you, I didn't even read anything. Do we? Do we? Should we? Should we live read the actual article rather than just the headline? Like, I mean, what do we want to hear her? Say? Okay, let's play a guessing game. What do you think Oprah said? I'll try to scan. What do you oh. think she Oprah said as um, explanatory? Why does Oprah want the world to read these books? Yes, basically. What is her verbiage? I hope the word grace appears somewhere. Okay. Because it's so on the page of the book and in the spirit of the books. Um, Mm. Something about grace, the nature of our relationships, connection, humanity. Am I just doing Oprah Mad Libs bingo? I, I think you just created a Target wall poster. Uh, is what you just said right there. So this is a piece in Oprah Magazine who uh, shockingly got the exclusive announcement about this particular pick. A piece by Lee Heber. We'll link in the show notes, bookwrite.com slash listen. Here is her quote. I will read it in its entirety. Marilyn Robinson is one of our greatest living authors, Oprah comments. And in the Gilead novel, she's written a quartet of masterpieces. The more yes. closely I read them, which indicates to me multiple readings. Let's come back to Mm -hmm. that. The more I find to appreciate and the more they show the way in seeing the beauty in the ordinary. I'm thrilled to share them all with you. Mm. Beauty in the ordinary, pretty good. Beauty in the ordinary, pretty good. Pretty good. Would you like to hear what Marilyn Robinson said on the news of Obviously. Oprah Winfrey is a singular voice in this country and in the world. It is wonderful and amazing that my books will have the kind of attention only she could only she could bring them. 
This so is the delighted. first time in Oprah's book, book club history that four works have been announced as a selection simultaneously. <laughs> it's such a good flex. And I think it really indicates how essential these four books are to each other. Yes. Like, I do think that you can read Gilead and only Gilead and have a very fulfilling experience. It is a near perfect novel. And I have also read it many times, Mm -hmm. more closely each time. (laughs) I know you have as well. I have two. I have two. It's wonderful by itself. The rest, the home, Lila and Jack... I find to be less perfect, but each one of them does. And we talked about this for like an hour and a half when Jack came out. <laughs> that each one, each one does fill out the world. And then what it made me want to do was like read all four and then go back and read yeah, Gilead right. again with the fullness of those characters and their world in my mind. Because each book really does add something to the universe mm-hmm. of, of these characters and their experiences and our understanding of them and... I love that she just went straight for, you know what? You should just read all four of them. You should. Because I agree. Yeah. Um, it's so fascinating to me. All of it's fascinating. As you know, <laughs> I'm fascinated in everything. <laughs> Let me pick out a couple of things here. One is, as I've had more time after our reading Jack and then our discussion of it too, I think I would go Gilead if you're going to read one. Mm-hmm. If you're going to read two, I think I'd go Gilead and Jack actually anymore the more I think about it. Um, and then Lila and Home, I think we sort of said they feel interchangeable is not right, but you don't get so much different from one than you get from the other, is my memory of it now. It's been a while since I've returned to either yeah, of both of those. I, I think that Gilead and Lila could be I could inform see that. each other. Yep. And home and jack inform each That's, other. Those are because there's multiple interests. I think that the only the only duo that doesn't do doesn't have an emergent properties like a Jack Lila combination. Like, fine, they're both Marilyn Robinson books. Sure. It can be great, but they it doesn't right. feel to me like they speak to each other. Um, and all that, I think you want the, the found. Other. I think you do want the foundation of Gilead. I don't know no how you. I, I can't. I would throw my literary body in front of someone saying, "I'm going to read Lila yeah. and only Lila." Like, who does that? It'd be interesting. I would too. And just yeah. Reverend Ames's voice, the voice of that novel is in, I don't know, if I had to pick like three narrative voices yep. that I got to hold on to right. for my the remainder of my reading life and just to have in my mind, mm. in, in my regular life, not just my reading life. It is the singular creation that, it, that it everything is. else it radiates is. from that, in, in the, in the, that's in the true. quartet. I agree And I, I think just so, we read for lots of reasons, mm. but Gilead and Reverend Ames's voice are so nourishing mm-hmm. is a is one of the better words I can come up with for it. There's just something very fulfilling about yeah. that experience. Yeah. It's the testament of Reverend Ames. I mean, there's there's a way of thinking yeah. about it as, a, as a, a sort of um, secular scripture of its own kind. And the other books in the gospel here um, mm-hmm. are apocryphal or, you know, I'm now using my biblical metaphors to a, to a nefarious end here. I'm sorry, it's probably <laughs> blasphemy to some people. But, but is the Ames' voice is the thing that makes you care about the other voices that you hear from in in the other books. It's so, did Oprah know that we're going to get four? And does this signal, these are the questions that brought to me. (laughs) 
Because she didn't pick Gilead by itself, to mm-hmm. my knowledge. I, I think I would have mentioned here, I didn't go back. Also, these are books 88 through 91 in the Oprah Book Club picks. We're approaching a century of the Oprah Book Club. Someone should do a podcast of all 100 books. Um, she didn't pick Gilead. Fine. There's plenty of great books. I don't think mm-hmm. it's any... I, Oprah doesn't own Gilead anything. It stands on its own, blah, blah, blah. When did she read it first? And did someone tell her that Jack was the end? And do we believe this means Jack is the end? If Marilyn was like, you know what, Oprah? They, they probably called Marilyn's people, right? Now I'm on a first base <laughs> with everyone. I assume something like this happens. They say, Marilyn Robinson's agent, I'm sure she... It's like a Julie Bearer quality, like big-time agent, I'm sure Marilyn yeah. Robinson has. Said, you know, we're getting ready. Just want you guys to. I don't know what happens in this call. Like when someone first tells the the Robinsonian people, this is happening. Like, is there anything to figure out? Are she going to be cool with it? She's not going to throw a friends and like spat. We don't want any of that garbage. The the books have been vetted. I hopefully in this like post American dirt world of Oprah, where like let's not do any of that business. Does anywhere in the point say to Oprah, and this is it's a good time to pick them because Miss Robinson's done with this mm. thing and if they don't say that does oprah pick them anyway knowing that what's left Botten, or, or you know whatever the fifth one could be um well i think that last phrase that whatever the fifth one could be is a, even if no one told oprah which i am with you i think someone probably did confirm for her like this mm-hmm. is complete and select them as they are but the like, what would the fifth one be? That feeling is, I think, pretty indicative of you don't need confirmation from the public. Oh, we could do like, it. There's the next generation here. The Ames kids, you, the Botton kids, the grand, I mean, the grand babies. You could, but that's like starting. We don't, we are not intimate with any of them. And that would be like starting fresh. That's like a whole secondary series. I agree. And, but I'm just saying it would be a Gilead book if. It I would. Remember, I don't Ames and Lila's child writes a you know is go, goes off to college five years after yeah. his dad Robbie, is dead and goes off Robbie, to become a reverend right? himself you know i don't know it's 1951 <laughs> he's going off to war could be 1942 he's 18 i'd read you and i would both read that book I, but anyway I would. it doesn't I don't, matter but i don't want it this. yeah it doesn't matter i think Oh, I just remembered that, like, as you were asking, when did Oprah first read it? This means there's going to be an Oprah Marilyn Robinson interview for the Oprah a Book Club on thing. Apple it's a TV. Whole thing. Yes, here I was saving this. It'll be for a. You. Oh. Um, and hopefully Oprah, that here, will here, include. Here's a sentence for us. Here's a sentence that we just need to hold <laughs> as something that we got to see with our living eyes. Okay. Oprah will lead an exploration of the universe of Gilead. Ah. <sighs> How do you like that? I I like that quite a bit. Yeah. I feel like we're going to have to queue it up on our Apple TV at, like, at the same time, like with each other on FaceTime. That's right. <laughs> she will also conduct an interview with an author whom Oprah calls a philosopher teacher, as well mm. as one of our most important fiction writers. Oprah knows what's going down, as if anyone she had does. any doubt. I mean, it's Oprah. good news. It is. I'm so here for really wonderful books being evangelized by the loudest voice of book evangelism in America. She uses her power thoughtfully. Right. Like there's real intention in Oprah Book Club selections. That's right. And when she 
she, you know, you pick 90, you have some that don't pan out or, you know, the American Dirt episode, I think I prefer, of course, that Oprah didn't pick it. But when it, she, it was an issue, like she addressed it and tried to wrestle with what that meant. And mm-hmm. and the same uh, thing know. with James Frey, you know, whatever, right. like 15 yes. years ago to have two to five memorable duds out of 90 selections. Yeah. That's an okay batting average. Yeah. I mean, you had to read, did you read two Wally Lamb books because of Oprah or just the one big one? Oh, I think I, I read both of them. She's come undone. And what's the one with the, twi- I know this much is true. I yeah. found those to be extremely tough hangs, but that's a conversation for another. I day. don't know what my adult eyes would have to say mm-hmm. about them. My 13 year old self was just like, so impressed with myself for reading the adult books that I'm you know who's pretty the big sure... winner of Wally Lamb? Me. Me. For having it's read me. It. it was my 13 year old ego. I was going to be convinced that those books were amazing, no matter what, because Oprah recommended them and I was fancy. And I trundled through reading about dudes in their 40s having issues, right? Right. And people having weird, like, I think it's in She's Come Undone, where one of the characters experiences a weird, uh, like, rebirth therapy situation in a pool. No, thank you. Yeah. All right. We're going to take another break and decide which of these stories about book controversies we want to talk about for a few minutes. Rebecca, you have three seconds to decide. Great. Okay. I guess the follow-up, we talked about Leander, Texas, these graphic novels being removed from reading lists. Teachers are now rallying against them. Some pushback there. I'm glad to see. I'm going to move on from that Mm -hmm. real quick. There's links to all these if you want to know more details. Um, Austin, Texas. Tough look for for Texas (sighs) this week. School counselors were called in after elementary school students are read a book about a trans character, um, this is silly. I mean, mm-hmm. if it weren't so painful, it would be silly. I'm not sure what to say about this one either. It's it's like, you know, it's like fourth graders um, had been read Call Me Max by Stonewall winning Arthur Kyle Lukoff. This is an article in Pink News um, by Emma Powell's Maurice, I believe, or Morris link in our show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, the book was written by an elementary school librarian for a kindergarten to third grade audience. And <laughs> they called in counsel. I don't know what, I don't know what else to say. I mean, I, I don't think I, I've ever heard of this. Have you ever heard of anything like this? I Calling have in counselors? Not, I have not heard of anything like this. And I was talking to a friend who's an English teacher in a high school here and the perspective they offered was this could be they've shared with me stories about like other times that counselors sort of flex on behalf of kids who are from marginalized communities oh i see okay maybe it's the other way okay go go and i think it's possible that what was happening here is that the district has these parents who are convinced that their children are being scarred by reading a story that just functionally acknowledges that trans people exist and are real and human and valid. So the school district can say, well, we'll call in counselors to talk Mm. to them about that. I don't know how many like social workers are in your life, but the ones that I know are pretty ready to ride. I was going to say, that's a a blue demographic (laughs) on the whole is my (laughs) social worker. Yeah. Yeah. And like Austin also tends to be pretty blue. So this is interesting to be happening there. So I'm, 
I'm on the side of hoping that what actually happened here mm-hmm. is the schools were able to say, you know, we'll bring out the counselors in case the kids are confused or upset by any of this. And if those counselors or social workers are like the ones that I've been around, they are riding for like, why was this upsetting to you? And, you know, it's important to be respectful of people's identities sure. and to treat them kindly, regardless of their gender expression or their sexual identity. And that if that's what's happening good move on the part of the school district as the like pat on the head to the concerned parents and letting counselors do their thing like probably we will not get a quote from one of these counselors about what kinds of conversations they had with these children but i don't think that school counselors are really out there encouraging children to take on marginalizing ideas about each other Mm. i certainly hope that they aren't the quotes do not support i mean there's no counselor quote so let's here we go chief learning <laughs> officer this is something a chief learning officer said i just want to frame that susan fambro explained that the story had been included in a list of diverse books circulated among teachers but was not appropriate to be read aloud to an entire elementary age class according hmm. to today counselors were made available to support students and the school administration worked with families to provide an explanation and researches this was after we had some parents who came to us and said, why was this shown? Is this in your curriculum? And where is this in your curriculum? It wasn't blah, blah, blah. So maybe, maybe it's like, you know, in Ocean's Eleven, where um, Andy Garcia calls in the F, the SWAT team to, to, to mm-hmm. help. And it turns out that they accounted for that. And uh, Pitt and Clooney dress up as SWAT team, right? So they call him to help. It was actually helping them do the thing that they wanted to do. Maybe you're right. Maybe in these moments, the counselors did came in. It was a sought to the bigoted response that we need counsel that, that, that we're exposing our straight kids to transgender people and they will be verklempt. They will be upset. They will be horribly damaged by all of this situation. Um, but the, the truth is the counselors came in looking for kids that may be identified with it somehow or mm-hmm. knew someone who did or had questions that were affirmative rather than saying, I mean, what, what, what would a counselor say? They come in to talk to kids after they read this book with the idea of saying, you've been exposed to something yeah. so well, mind-alteringly <laughs> shocking that we need to right. talk about it. I and just don't, what's Kyle, the next sentence that comes out of their mouth? I can't uh, even imagine. Right, yeah. Kyle Lukoff, who's the author of the book, it's Call Me Max, um, there are some tweets and quotes from, uh, from him in this piece saying, you know, what's the trauma that's... Yeah being caused here and are you providing similar resources when students are exposed to homophobia or Mm. transphobia Mm. and these are great and important questions that schools also need to be on the hook for answering and i'm hoping that that's the kind of education and support that's really going on when counselors are rolled into a room when a conversation like this happens um and I'm, I want to recognize that's just a hope. It's also possible that yeah. the kids didn't even notice this was something different. You know, kids only know that a thing is different or upsetting if their parents or adults in the room tell them that it is. And it's possible those counselors walked in and were like, does anybody have any questions about this? And mm-hmm. no child, no child was bothered is a possibility. I have a very hard time from my personal sample of yeah. school counselors and social workers imagining that they actually did the work that these upset parents think they would have been doing right. to like to placate worries about 
what it means for children to talk about trans characters. And I'm even, I've got an eyebrow raised at this chief, whatever, chief learning mm-hmm. officer saying that the, it was on a list of diverse books, but it's not appropriate to be read aloud to a whole class. Like, maybe it's not appropriate just because you knew it would have caused problems. And like, I know educators make those kinds of choices. Yeah, like, maybe right. I'm not going to read this out loud to my whole class because I don't want the story to become these three parents or whoever who ruined the situation. Yeah, I don't want maybe the bigot Valkyries to come flying in. After right. Make a maybe I'm going to save this book and I'm going to hand it to the kids that mm-hmm. I think are, that I think most need it and could be changed and helped by encountering it. But that what what the definition of appropriate is and the functions of that definition aren't here as well. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, interesting story out of Amazon this week. Um, apparently there was a book. I'm not going to say the name of this book. There's a book out there that essentially is pushback about trans folks and, you know, the, the emerging and well, not emerging. It's been emerging for a long time, but really the mainstreaming of discourse around transgender folks, you know, in, in the public, um, as that issue has become more and more talked about and to the good, mostly of all. Um, some Republican senators asked about the book being pulled from Amazon. Um, and Amazon said, you know what? We don't sell books that treat LBGDQ plus identities as mental illnesses. So they kind of Streisand effect themselves here a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um I'm very glad to see this. I'm very glad to see this. I'm very glad that Amazon and other store bookstores, we know writ large do this, but Amazon has the most juice that realizes that their platforms are not neutral and cannot be neutral. And if they are not, you have to be proactive in curating the kinds of messages and titles that you want to support and put out in the world and profit from. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is a story in EW written by Nick Romano came out yeah just just uh, last week at the, after we were recording um I don't have much to say about this at this point violating the content guidelines um says in their content guideline it, pro- it, pro- it prohibits products that promote intolerance based on race religion and sexual orientation as well as those that promote insight or glorify hate or violence towards any person or group my guess would be if Amazon more vigilantly enforced that policies, this particular book would not be the only one that would need mm-hmm. to come down. Yeah. Anything else to say about that one, Rebecca? Glad to see, um, just echoing, I'm glad to see this and to see a more overt discussion from a major book retailer about responsibility for recognizing some responsibility for the impact of the materials that they sell um particularly you know particularly in this case where we're talking about understanding gender and sexual identity as parts of humans Mm -hmm. not as expressions of mental illness or not um but also there are lots of messages that have been out in the world for the last four or five years that went to the the parts of this policy more around hate and violence towards specific mm-hmm. groups of people, inciting violence towards specific groups of people. And I have to wonder what an alternate universe, you know, if, if we could AV test the universe as we like to fantasize about <laughs> here, what does it look like if Amazon had pulled 
or refuse to shelve in the first place some of the more destructive right-wing kinds of things that had yeah. come out in the last four years do right. we what does that do for dampening interest in those conversations or dampening interest in those communities that have popped up online mm -hmm. and that you know so much of that conversation was facilitated online so many of the plans that went into the insurrection happened online i don't know that i don't believe that removing books that contributed to that thinking would have right. solved the whole problem but it it lets amazon or any retailer at least sleep at night knowing that they were not part of right. supporting the conversation right. and i'm just glad to see things continue to move in this direction mm -hmm. this the recognition that you're not a neutral platform that just distributes things that if the things you distribute are harmful or inspire people to cause harm because they can read them and find grounding in the material that they've read to justify harmful behaviors, you have some culpability there. That's right. And the easy decision is we just let people do stuff. That's right. the easy thing to say, right? Because turns out there are a lot of books out there that you're implicitly saying we are monitoring or at least responsive to hearing about if there's something on there. 10,000 new ISBNs a year, something like that. That's books alone. Forget about movies and books and... or. Uh, movies and music and other kinds of media out there. It's a big ask. But last I checked, let me just check right here. Amazon's market cap. Oh, $1.5 trillion. You've got the scratch to do this, yep. right? This is a choice that Amazon can make. And at the very least, they seem willing to get rid of the most harmful stuff, which I'm mm -hmm. glad Mayor Esther succeed in this regard. I say it qualifies yep. as that. Let's end with this story which I think is more funny than anything. Um, <laughs> Michael's, which is, is this a national chain? I don't know. I know enough. Is yeah. it, does everyone know Michael's? Is it like a, I a think thing? The, yeah, the craft stores. Yeah, it's, it's a, a craft store. Um, they have books in there, like, <laughs> like many books things about do. crafts, books mm -hmm. about crafts. And as part of a um, behind my, st I'm not logged in with my stupid time saying Rebecca, you have to help me out with actually the same okay. details if I get any of this wrong. Um, a feminist, a feminist cross stitch book, which we've seen out before, like it's been out for a while, but they, they yes. were stocking it in the stores as part of a women's history or women's women's history month. Is that what it said? I think there? so. Yes. Yeah. Uh, turns out there's some sweary stuff in that mm -hmm. and the Michael's clientele enough squawking happened on behalf of Michael's clients who apparently were interested enough in the book to pick it up and flip through it. I'm trying to figure out like actually what it would have happened for this to happen. <laughs> oh, I have a theory. Okay. So we, I'll, I'll set you up here. I'll be the, the announcer and do the color commentator here in a minute. And Michael said, you know what? We don't want to stock this because it's not really in the spirit of crafting metaphor. I'm done. I don't know anything about crafting. Is that the salient details of the case here? That's what's happened. And then they're like, we're not yeah. going to sell this anymore. Pulling off the show. That is what's happened. I think that, you know, okay, so if you are unfamiliar with craft stores, there's a not small overlap between craft store branding and family values. Yeah, there you go. That's a good way and, of expressing it. Family values, all the air quotes yes. in the world, right? Yeah. Right, right, all the air quotes in the world. And Hobby Lobby is more known for this than <laughs> Michael's <they> is. <laughs> we don't need to go yeah. into that. They really put the lobby in Hobby Lobby, <laughs> turns out, when they do when it comes to their political existence. Yeah. Um, but the brand of a craft store 
is you know, people are in these stores with their kids. It's a very, um, I don't know, they like to, a lot of the craft stores like to tap into I, what I would call like retrogressive ideas about femininity mm-hmm. and what what women are doing when they're just home all day, cooking dinner, waiting for their husbands to come back. Um, so this feminist cross-stitch book is on a display. Apparently it's on a display. Picked, all with that in mind, it's interesting they picked mm-hmm. it up. They called it feminist cross-stitch and they, they, yeah, they chose to put it on the shelf. Right. It's very interesting in that the well, context like, of what you, you know, said. Lots of people craft yeah. who are who are young and lots of people craft who are progressive. Mm-hmm. And I would guess that Michaels has some buyers in the corporate chain who are yeah. both young right. and progressive. Right. And we're like, this feminist cross-stitch book is going to sell. And you know what? Book Riot has made a cross-stitch book. And I can tell you that this feminist cross-stitch book sells mm-hmm. because I've seen <laughs> comp, comp research right? on comp. it. Yeah, comp research-based. <laughs> so uh, my guess about what happened is that someone who, to- who tows the family value line was shopping in a Michaels and saw this feminist cross-stitch book and was upset about the presence of feminist oh. cross-stitch. That was the inciting thing, it would be my best guess, and then flipped through it, and now they're doubly mad because there's also the F word. Or do you think they, they prob- use the F-bomb as an excuse to get rid of the well, other, so other F-word on the cover, I think so the I think the customer probably right. was first upset by the presence of this feminist thing, picked it up looking for a thing to get mad about, Mm. and then found the F word in it, took it to a store manager. I've, I've, you know, worked in retail. I can imagine this encounter. Talk to the manager. Literally talk to the manager (laughs) about it. There is talk to the manager energy all over this story. Dude, the biggest ever. (laughs) And the manager saw the F word. And it is apparently against, it is yes. in Michael's policy yes. not to sell products with the F word in them or on Which, them in their to stores. Me, fine. Yeah, sure. Okay, sure. It's not, they say it's not in line with our brand yeah. and that policy will not change. And you know what? If I'm a craft store built on family values and no. people are trotting their kids in and out, I want your money. And if part of getting your money means not putting curse words on things because your kids will see them, I'm going to make that choice too. Michael's has a right to make this choice. So, first of all, this is not censorship. <laughs> Oh, I forgot we had to do this. We had to ring that this is not censorship, Bell. Where is it? I, I use it so often, I even, think it's broken. I need to take it in. It's uh, up for a Even a when it's a book that we might like and that I yeah. would personally spend money on, it's not censorship, not censorship. For, for a store to not decide to sell it. So Michaels has said, actually, whoops, we didn't know it had the F word in it. We're going to take this off of our shelves. They're just, they're in line with their policies. Mm-hmm. But my my best guess about how they became aware of this is not that the curse words were the initial problem. It was yeah. somebody had to pick this book up in order to discover the curse words. And no one who's, shot, who's flipping through a feminist cross-stitch book where the design on the cover says a woman's place is in the revolution is going to be surprised that some of the language is salty. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's in, is, in, in our A-B test of the universe. If there's a version of feminist cross-stitch that doesn't have magic, you know, one of the George Carlin magic word sort of things I'm guessing is mm-hmm. in the Michael's corporate policy, and someone talks to the manager about it, then what happens? I guess I'm, I would be curious to hear how that was yeah. going to shake out, but... 
we didn't get that. That's not what we don't. We don't get is. that one. My favorite part of this story in the New York Times is that there's an embedded photo of a um, looks like a social media post where someone said the craft store where my mom works or, ordered this book for all its locations without realizing that it's full of swears and then sent out a panic email. She rescued it for me. So like someone's mom brought this home for them, and mm. you can see it, there's a sticker that's been put on the front of the book that says "Put in Compactor" and has been peeled off. Incredible so, stuff. <laughs> so at least at this one Michael's location, the plan was <laughs> just put these books in the trash, which I would think that Michael's is probably ordering their books not as returnable from the publishers. Yeah, right. So like they were just you were literally just burning money if you put wow, this in the trash compactor. Right. So yeah, they could have just all... turned around and sent it back to whatever. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, they could have just returned it. And Michael's is like, you know, we object only to the swear words. And they point to concerns that a customer could have picked up the copy and like bought it without realizing that it contained curse words. So okay, that's fine. Um, the company also said it would no longer discard books. <laughs> they, they're getting it from both sides there. <laughs> the book, we're, 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 we're not only going to take the feminist book out, we're going to burn it. <laughs> nice job, Michaels. Way to screw up on the way in and the way out. <laughs> really amazing. Yeah, this was when I was reading this this morning. I was like, I know exactly what went down yeah, here. Yeah. This Karen did not like the word no. feminist. And Michael's, and found it, it is yeah. a very homey, comforting kind of place. Even you know, snark aside, like these kinds of stores, you go in and there's the fake flowers and there's the felt, you know, cutout stuff and the glue sticks. And I can totally get that they don't want f-bombs in a book someone can they don't want the fight they don't want the. they don't want the social media thing like that's not yeah, what their totally. business is i totally they, get that. i totally I find get the whole that. thing more hilarious than trouble yeah you know like i remember you know when i was a bookseller at barnes and noble many many years ago now we had there was some big book that was out a memoir by a celebrity and mm. the person was it was a woman who was scantily clad on the cover uh-huh. and it was a popular book at the time and we had displays all over the place and like once a day someone was upset that we had this book available and in prominent displays because our, my children are seeing this scantily clad woman on this book cover yes. and i you know i always wanted to be like they only know that bikinis are a problem because you're framing them that That's right. way That's right. um and we didn't take them down but this these conversations do happen these kinds of customer complaints do happen and you can see and like not for nothing one of the top amazon reviews on book riot's own cross stitch book is complaining that it has swear words in it well it is i mean it's weird to think of the cross stitch book space as being liminal in terms of progressivism but it is an interesting collision of convention and progressivism right because cross stitch like to me it's it's harder to think of a like a more dusty habit than cross-stitching. That's my bias. I'm just saying that out loud. That is my bias about what cross-stitching is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that there are these spaces where it's a, it's an act of radical thinking mm-hmm. or expression or, or creativity. It makes some sense that there's some friction in that movement, right? Where the land and sea yeah. come together, you get some interesting mm-hmm. stuff going on. I find that very interesting. A side note, sidebar here. Isn't it weird that scantily clad became the cliche for someone with not many clothes on? Did we go through like barely dressed or minimally clothed? Did we try all those out and we just stuck you know, on scantily clad? That's so weird. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I had to cycle through 
like 25 other alternate phrases from my relatively conservative Midwestern upbringing before I landed on one that wasn't like inherently sexist. Right. Scantily clad. It it, it is, it is obfuscating because if you don't scantily clad, oh, it means they're showing their knickers is what you're talking about. They're showing their (laughs) bra strap or their belly button or something. It's like, but scantily clad is now the cliche that we use for that. And we're, and, and, and it's a cliche when you were trying to describe it sideways, that someone yeah. is showing skin. And, and even scantily clad is inherently sexist, because when is the last time we described a man as being scantily clad? <laughs> yeah, you, you can't be... If you don't got a shirt on, can you be scantily clad? You just don't have a shirt on at that point. We can't use, right. we can't use that for dudes. And scantily clad means you're somewhere between dressed and... You're you're on the other side between dressed and naked, but you're not naked. That's so weird. It's a weird <laughs> phrase. Nakedness, it's just nudity is a spectrum. Yeah, Jeff. nudity is a spectrum. If you think about it, everyone's nude all the time. They just have clothes on. That's one of my, I think one of my kids said that at one point. It kind of blew my mind. It's, it's like, profound. Whoa. Let me hold on to something. Ruins a long-running whoa. joke from Arrested Development, but very profound. Oh, okay. There we go. All right. Well, that's our show. Now that we're talking about uh, describing... Euphemism um, for naked. Uh, this is our show, apparently. Podcast at bookrad.com if you've got feedback for us. Next week, week from today, we're recording our episode about Claire and the Sun. Have you started it? I have not. <sighs> Are you into it? I started it last night, and by the like, second page, I was like, oh, right. Ishiguru. Yeah. Our, Just... our old friend Greg Zimmerman, I saw a post about it. And he really liked it, which I usually mm. take as a good sign for stuff like that. That is a good sign. Uh, podcast at bookride.com, bookride.com slash listen. Claire in the Sun next week. Um, let's read that. Rebecca, thank you so much. I'll talk to you next time. You too. Have a good one. <laughs>